people are dismissed. Children can go to the back and be taught in children's church there. We're grateful for those that are willing to do that. Help us focus in here. Because after they leave, most of you are good. That's a... Okay. Matthew chapter 9. This last week I was doing a little reading on latent potential. Uh, to illustrate what latent potential is, imagine you take an ice cube and you set it in a room that's 20 degrees and then you turn the heat on in that room. Uh, and as the room warms up 22 degrees, nothing happens to the ice cube. It gets 23 degrees, nothing happens. 25 degrees, nothing happens. 27 degrees, nothing happens. All the way up to 30, 31, 32. And then when the room gets to 33 degrees, slowly that ice begins to melt. One degree difference, but a lot happened to get to that one degree. Now, our Christian lives... Uh, our habits and efforts can be the same way. We work and we work and we see no results until we finally cross a threshold and then we see the difference. Did you know that cancer spends 80% in your body uh, of time of its life in your body uh, undetected and then the last 20% wreaks havoc? Uh, we exercise and see no difference for a while. We work to try to get ahead and we don't get ahead for a while. The problem is that so often we quit too soon just before that last degree that will turn into success and results. The funny thing is, if you do last and you do make it past that point and you do see a measure of success, people will call you an overnight success, even though you realize all the work that's went on behind the scenes and up to that point. Many of us go through the Christian life and we don't see the results we want to see right away. And so we quit. We begin to coast. We are doing the right thing, but we're impacting no one else with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I want to challenge you to renew your passion for a world so desperate for they know not what most of the time. I want to challenge you to get a heart for the harvest. If you'll read along with me, Matthew chapter 9, I want to start at verse number 36, and then we're going to go to some other passages of Scripture as well, but starting here at Matthew 9, verse number 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We want to pray today for a heart for the harvest. Father, I ask you to use this, your word, to prick our hearts today, to challenge us in a special way. And we ask that we would leave here this morning with the beginnings of a heart for the harvest. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus had a heart for the harvest. And we see it here in verse 36. Uh, the, it was this compassion for souls that brought him from heaven to earth, that motivated his every uh, waking activity. In Luke 19.10, uh, he said this, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Mark 10.45, he said, For even the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It was this passion for souls that propelled him to an old rugged cross where he gave his life 
for lost sinners like you and like me. In Matthew chapter 9 here, we see that Jesus is in front of a lot of people, or he sees many people, the multitudes, the Bible says, and they had gathered to see the miracles and, and to, to basically see all the buzz, what Jesus, the buzz about Jesus, what it was all about. And as he looked at the helpless, the hopeless, and the hurting, Jesus was moved with compassion on these lost souls. And we ought to have the same heart for the harvest that motivated our Savior. He saw their departure from God uh, as he looked on these people. He saw the multitudes of mankind, and he was moved by the misery of mankind. His heart went out to them. The Bible says he saw that they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They were lost, lonely. They were in peril and defenseless, and Jesus was stirred by their condition. And by the way, what were they doing? They were just living life, I assume. Uh, this they were doing what people do, caught up in the grind, working, playing, going to parties, visiting each other in their homes, getting caught up in activities and hobbies. This is not necessarily talking about skid row. This is not the homeless shelter or the prisons. Uh, this is uh, Everyone was included in who Jesus is looking here. This was the lower class, the middle class, the upper class. Uh, you see, then as now, people do not necessarily realize their need for a Savior. They live their lives in absence of thinking about eternity, not realizing the time that we have here is very short compared to the forever and ever that comes after this. John Q. Public is not out shaking his fist at God, uh, being a God-hater. He is just living his life without regard to eternity. And Jesus saw this in the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion. He saw their departure from God. He also saw their depravity in sin. The Bible says because they fainted. Now, he's not referring to physical fainting here. There's a deeper meaning. He was moved with compassion uh, because these people were lost under a burdensome load of sin. And I love his response. It's not simply an intellectual assessment of humanity's situation. His response was that of a tender shepherd. I don't, maybe you, like me, were raised in a religion. I was raised in a very strict religion with lots and lots of rules. And sometimes when religion dominates our lives instead of relationship, what we get a picture of is God as a stern, hateful being up in heaven with his clipboard watching your life, and when you mess up, he makes a check mark, and he watches you and your failures, and he's ready to rain down judgment on you when you mess up. That's not the case at all. Uh, Jesus looked on this crowd and he had the feelings of a shepherd. He had compassion for them. He loves you. He is heartbroken at the ruin that sin brings into your life. He wants to offer you something better. Jesus saw lost people as having no real goals. The Bible says here they were scattered abroad like sheep. And sheep are not strong. Sheep are not self-sufficient. In fact, if you've ever had sheep, we had one. One was enough to know. Sheep are very dumb. Uh, he, he was, uh, God was very astute in calling us sheep because uh, there's a lot of similarities. They have a propensity to go astray. And when they go astray, they'll just wander aimlessly further and further away. Lost sheep have no instinctive sense that leads them back to the fold. We've seen, there's even made movies about it, but we've all heard stories about dogs that have been uh, taken miles and miles away from their home and they find their way home. They have an instinctive sense to get there. Not sheep. 
Sheep just stay lost. Sheep are dumb. And uh, so this is what Jesus is looking at them, and they have no direction. They have no goals in their life, and they're just wandering around aimlessly through life, and he has compassion on them for it as sheep having no shepherd. The world is the same today. People blinded by humanism, wandering about in a spiritual wilderness. Can I tell you that even today, millions of people will perish under the flag of Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and Catholicism. No wonder we read of the Lord's compassion on them. Every man, every woman, every boy and every girl living on earth is the object of his love and his concern and he wants the best for them. He could not see a poor woman struggling in the depths of a disease for 12 years without doing something to help her. He could not see a poor demonic unable to speak for himself and not do something about it. He couldn't bear the heartbreak of the leper that no one would help and no one cared for. And when that leper looked at him and said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Oh, Jesus couldn't help it, except he looked back at him and he said, I will be thou clean. Oh, he couldn't look down at humanity and not say to his father, Lord, send me. Here am I. Send me. And he came here to bear our curse of sin. He had compassion, and so should we. This drove him to make the statement that he made next. And I want to break it down. Look at verse number 37. Let's see first at the people addressed. Then saith he unto his disciples. Jesus did not give this counsel to the religious leaders of the day. He did not speak to the he wasn't talking to the rabbis and the preachers. He was here talking to those who were committed to following him. And if you today are a child of God and you have accepted Christ as your personal savior, and you're a Christian, he's talking to you when he's talking this when he's talking in this verse right here. Look what he says, the people he addressed and then the problem acknowledged in verse 37, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. The problem here is twofold. First, the largeness of the harvest. There is harvest, he said, is plenteous. Uh, the, this is figurative language, talking about the great need that people have, spiritually speaking. There were multitudes who needed the message about the salvation in Christ. This has not changed. The problem still persists today. The harvest still is a large one. We have a great harvest field in our town, in our county, in our state, in our nation, and in our world, and we need to have a heart for that harvest. People all around us are in desperate need of the gospel, and they don't even know it. There's many sad passages in the Bible, but one of the saddest verses that I've ever seen is found in Psalm 142, verse 4. He says here, I looked on my right hand and beheld. Behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Now, isn't that a sad verse? And yet, I believe today that there are literally millions in our world that, uh, for, that today no man cares for their souls. How many people live even around us that have no one to pray for them, that have no one to tell them about Jesus, that have no one to live a Christian witness before them? Sadly, many Christians who are uh, hell-proof and heaven-bound do not have enough compassion to reach out and reach others for Jesus Christ. What a contrast to Jesus. That brings us to the second problem. You have the largeness of the harvest, but then you also have the laborers for the harvest. The laborers are few, he said. This is a chronic problem then, and it's a chronic problem today. 
Uh, most churches lack adequate laborers to do the work. Few people are willing to get involved and commit themselves to serving the Lord. In fact, most of our churches are like football games. You have thousands of people who are in desperate need of exercise, watching 22 people who are in desperate need of rest, doing all the work. We need to be involved. Most people are too taken with their own concerns uh, to want to work in God's field. There is a labor shortage in God's work. There is a people address the problem acknowledged, and then look at the praying assigned here. Look at verse 38. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, we have to examine this verse here, because what exactly is Jesus praying for? Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Are there not enough people in church? Are there not enough laborers? Is the prayer here that we should pray that more people would be born? Oh, Lord, fill up our nursery. Uh, bring more people. And that's always a good thing. But that's not the purpose of the prayer here. I don't believe that's the essence of his prayer. He points out there is a harvest. And then he points out that there are laborers. The problem is not that there are no people to do the work. The problem is that the people are not doing the work. And so what I believe with all my heart that his prayer is here essentially is that we would have the heart of the Savior infused into our heart and that we would get a heart for the harvest. And we would go. No one, uh, now one of the things that can discourage us in this area is the absence of a yield. We have been going to church for years and we hand out tracts as we can and we talk to people about the Lord. We invite people to come to church. And there seems to be no fruit from our labors. I, some of you garden. I dabble in gardening. Most of, the, most of what I grow is hot peppers because we're going to eat so many hot peppers in heaven. I'm just getting used to the idea right now. Uh, but what, if you grow a garden, if you plant radish seeds, it's going to be around 25 to 30 days that you harvest them. If you plant green beans, it's going to be about 60 days, and you'll harvest them. A few years ago, I planted asparagus, and the instructions on that was that I would have to wait three years for the first crop to come up when you plant asparagus. And then you can go even further. If you, uh, 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 oak trees, oak trees take decades to mature. You can wait 30, 40 years if you plant an acorn for that to grow to full height. The, the, the thing that they all have in common is a harvest always involves waiting. But the problem with our spiritual life is sometimes we think we're planting a radish and we're actually planting an acorn. And that's okay. Just plant. Just water. Just do the work. Let me take you to a passage that will encourage you if you'll turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Because we, especially in America, probably more than anywhere else, we gauge our success on results. We are very results-driven people. If we're in retail, we count our sales. If we're a farmer, we calculate our crop yield. If we're manufacturers, we assess our output. In laboring for God's harvest, though, we must look at it a little differently. Read with me verse number 35, uh, starting at verse 35 on, uh, out of chapter 4 here. Say not ye, 
There are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look into the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, and whereon, that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored that ye that are entered into their labors." And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, that he, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. i got to give you a little background of what's going on here. In verse 4 of this chapter, Jesus told, let the disciples know that he must needs go through Samaria. And this is an odd thing. Because they usually avoided that place at all costs, Jews did. The Samaritans were dogs in their opinion. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked on top of one another. Uh, you had on the top, you had Galilee, then you had Samaria, and then you had Judea on the bottom. So if you were traveling from Judea uh, to Galilee, the easiest and quickest way to get there would be to go straight through Samaria. But that's not what most Jews did. Most Jews would cross over the Jordan River, go through Perea, and then cross back across the Jordan River and into Galilee so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria because they didn't like the Samaritans and they didn't want to have anything to do with them. It goes all the way back to 722 B.C. The Assyrians had conquered Israel and they took the northern tribes into captivity. The invaders brought Gentiles from other places to settle in that same region, 2 Kings chapter 17. They brought pagan idols, and the remaining Jews there, uh, they began to uh, intermarry, and they worshiped the idols that the pagans brought. Meanwhile, the northern kingdom of Israel, of, of Judah, fell, uh, fell to Babylon in 600 B.C., and 70 years later, a remnant came back of around 43,000. They were permitted to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. But the people that were in the northern kingdom, now known as the Samaritans, uh, they opposed this homecoming and did everything they could to stop the rebuilding. So the walls of bitterness were be built between these two factions, and for hundreds of years, 550 years, uh, they hated each other. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They wanted nothing to do with each other. They did what we do. They looked down on their neighbors. They thought themselves better than other people around them. Uh, and, and they, they did, and can I tell you, friend, there is nothing that will prevent a heart for the harvest more than a superiority complex. I am better. God loves me more than He loves the people in jail, or God loves me more than He loves the addict. And that, friend, is not true. He gave Himself for everyone that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. We must understand, when Jesus said he must needs go through Samaria, this was a radical move on his part. And just for Jesus to have a conversation with a Samaritan was something you do not do. So the must here was much more than a direct route. The must that Jesus had for going through Samaritan was because he had a planned encounter. And sure enough, he met a woman at Jacob's well, and he began to speak with this woman. She was not only a foreigner, she was actively living in sin. To, re to speak to her, Jesus reached across several barriers. 
He reached across a cultural barrier, a racial barrier, a moral barrier, and a gender barrier. In the course of this conversation, Jesus showed her kindness and compassion. He offered her living water. He offered her salvation. However, before she could be saved, she had to deal with her sin. And so in verses 17 through 18, read me with me if you will. Verse 17, And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that thou sayest truly. So he showed her who she was. That's important when we come to Christ. We have to recognize our sin. But then, praise God, he showed her who he was. And he showed her that there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And then it was at this point right here that they were interrupted. The disciples, if you read, we didn't have time to read the whole passage, but they had been sent to the village for food. So now the disciples return with their takeout order. And they're ready to feed Jesus and have lunch together there. And so they're shocked that Jesus should be talking to a Samaritan and a woman on top of that. This was just not something that you did. Now, I have to think, they'd probably seen her already. Because in the beginning of the chapter, they had went into town for supplies, and she was coming from town to get water. So at some point, they probably passed her. And I wonder what that passing was like. Probably going to the other side of the road. Surely no uh, kind greeting was given her. They probably avoided her eyes as they passed by the other side. You see, they did not have a heart for the harvest like Jesus did. Now, here we are, fast forward. Uh, Jesus has talked to her. The disciples come back with takeout, and she leaves. And the disciples essentially, well, she's gone, so now let's eat. And all of a sudden, Jesus isn't hungry anymore. He says in verse 32, but he, uh, after they said, Master, eat, he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. You ever have that happen to you? You're hungry, but then some great emotion, something happens, you get a phone call, you hear some news, and emotion kills your appetite. That's what happened here. All of a sudden, Jesus, with what he saw, wasn't hungry anymore. And when he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of, the disciples are so thick-headed they immediately asked him, did he get DoorDash while we were gone? Because we went to get food, and now he says he's got food. Who brought him food? Jesus isn't talking about physical food. And he, he's, I, I love this, in verse 35, I want to read what he said in verse 35, but before I read it, I want you to keep in mind, I believe this is a passionate delivery. He had been hungry, but I'm not even hungry anymore. I have food that you don't know of. I have a hold on something that I so desperately want you to grasp. And with that, read along with me, verse 35. Say not ye there are four months, and then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the harvest. For the, or look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What's he saying here? Guys, we're committed to sharing the love of God to mankind. We're attempting to show them an escape from the power of sin. Yet here was a woman, and you look down your nose at her? That's not a having a heart for the harvest. He, she's part of the field, and he's saying, look at the field. You're talking about how you want to turn the world upside down. You're going to do great things for God. The field's right in front of you. And you turn down your nose at her. It bothered Jesus. And here's the irony of the situation. 
By, by the way, before I go there, the, the point was not that the harvest is there. It's always there. The harvest was there then. The harvest is here now. The problem that Jesus dealt with is to get his disciples to work in that harvest. We're going through the book of Jonah on Wednesday nights. And there's something interesting in the book of Jonah. There's 48 verses in the whole book of Jonah. And the whole point of Jonah is that God told Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. And then we find out later there's a great revival. Nineveh got right with God and they got saved and they, they repented. But out of 48 verses, do you know how many verses are dedicated to Nineveh getting right with God? Four. The other 48 minus 4 equals 44, right? The other 44 verses was God trying to get his man to just do what he's supposed to do. That's God's biggest hurdle in the Christian life. He can save your neighbor. He can save your friend's marriage. He can evangelize this town. But he needs his people to get a heart for the harvest. And if we don't have a heart for the harvest, we're going to hinder his work. But I want you to look at the irony here of the situation. While the disciples were waiting to dig into their falafels, and they're ready to have a picnic there, the woman that they thought was not worthy of them, guess where she is? She's working the fields. Look at verse number 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. It's interesting to me that they had no use for her, and meanwhile, she's out doing their job. She's telling everybody she meets about Jesus. This is so powerful. She had just experienced the forgiveness and grace of God. She was fired up. Now she had a heart for the harvest. Could it be that some of us have gotten so used to the idea after being a Christian for years and we think, yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die and the Bible teaches you can know for sure you're going to heaven and I know that for sure. And Yes, I know my sins are forgiven and, and uh, I know that according to Romans 6, as a Christian, sin no longer has dominion or power over me. We get so apathetic about these great and wondrous truths that we get apathetic about a field out there that is desperate for those things that we have been given and we take for granted as God's children. We need to get a heart for the harvest. Here's a woman that was cast aside by five husbands. She's desperately trying to find some love and affection, and she's trying to find someone to accept her and to love her, and shows she's with even a sixth person, and sin has left her an outcast among the outcasts. And you put her, your nose up at her? Well, this bothered Jesus. Hence what he said. He said, hey, men, wake up! Look at the fields. They're white to harvest already. So what happens next? Mercy, this is good. Listen, look at with me at verse number 40. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would care, uh, tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Now, what's happening here? Exactly what Jesus was talking about in verse 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gather fruit into life eternal, both that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Jesus and the disciples were reaping now from what the woman had been out sowing. They now came to Jesus. we got to know more about you. This woman's been talking about what you did. Now we've got to know you. And so they came to Jesus seeking him. And this tells me she didn't do any reaping. 
In fact, it says in verse 42, they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. So she awakened a thirst in them, but she didn't do any reaping. But she did a whole lot of sowing. She just worked the field. She spread the word. She spread the seed. And the disciples got to reap the field. But oh, friend, listen, don't miss this. In verse 36, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. We're all in the same work. We're all in the same work. We, we Different people will have different results. There's going to be people that you invest in and you might never see them come to Christ. But be a worker. Be a planter. Be a waterer. Spread the seed. She didn't get discouraged. She didn't quit. And I ask you today, and I'm challenging you, don't quit because you haven't led 50 people to Christ. Uh, just work the field. In light of our success-driven mentality, I have a question for you. Who was more successful? The woman or the disciples? The disciples are standing at the altar. People are pouring in, wanting to talk to Jesus. They're repenting of their sins. They're getting right with God. So who's the most successful? The woman's not even present there. Both of them are. She worked the field. She was out throwing the seed out. And now they're reaping. And they're both successful. They were reaping the harvest that she had worked. She didn't reap. She just sowed. The Bible says both can rejoice together. I don't know this, but I picture these things in my mind. And I wonder if she wasn't off to a side watching this scene, big old tears running down her face thinking, man, they're getting it. They understand who he is. And the little that I got to do to contribute to it, praise the Lord. See, both can rejoice together. They probably didn't build her a statue. In fact, it was Jesus that they begged to stay in verse 40. It seems like they forgot about her. My challenge to you today is to get a passion for, this, for souls, a heart for the harvest. You may not lead a soul to Christ personally this year. So plant, so water, so spread the seed. Just work in the harvest. Just because you're not picking all the fruit doesn't mean that you're not valuable to the work. Hand out gospel tracts. Invite people out to the best church in Brookings. Amen. I'm biased. Hallelujah. I was talking to a couple last night. I invited them to church, and they're they're excited. And I was uh, I hope to see them. They, they promised they'd come, and and uh, we we're, we we're talking about the church and just asked some questions about it. And I was talking about you folks. I always brag you up because I think we do have the best church in Brookings. And I said, and the preaching is phenomenal. And they said, and she stopped for a second. Are you the one that does it? And I said, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so second question: Who gets the reward? for all those people that came? The disciples or the woman? Well, Jesus tells us, both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. But I'll tell you what that will require. For us to plant, to water, to throw the seed, and to reap. It's going to require a heart for the harvest. You won't do it if you don't have a heart for the harvest. Now, this is the day of the year that I like to review some of our past goals and of 2023 and, and uh, look at what we have going forward. And I'll remind you of some of our 2023 goals. Our theme was to make an impact. And I believe, I mean, I wanted our church to make an impact. I wanted to make an impact. And I certainly wanted you to make an impact as well. And I believe we've done so. 
We've seen people saved and baptized. We've increased our membership. And I was privileged to preach at two revival meetings out of state this year. And in the past two weeks, I've gotten two calls, one from out west and one all the way out from the state of New York. And uh, both told me they've listened to every message on our podcast. And they uh, just wanted to call and let us know uh, what a blessing our ministry's been to them. And they're both a thousand miles away. Uh, We're impacting people we don't even know we're impacting. And that's my prayer, and I'm grateful for that. The second thing, our goal was two interns. Uh, This was a step of faith for us, but I wanted to bring on two interns this summer, and we did, and wasn't that a blessing to have them here? They did a lot of work, got a lot accomplished. They were a big blessing at camp and VBS. And then we also had the goal for a prime timers trip. Uh, That didn't happen because none of our prime timers would work with us, but that's okay. Uh, We might look at one ahead of time. We had a goal to have new siding all around the building, and praise God, That has happened, and we had some worries about that, but that got done. And then the pastor's conference. That's one of my goals every year is for our pastor's conference to be an encouragement to pastors in our area. And we had more pastors this year than we've ever had. It was a great success for the Scott Pauley came and preached, and uh, we had a wonderful time together. And by the way, you were a tremendous blessing because not one pastor paid for a hotel room. You paid for them, and they're grateful for that. Uh, There was shouting, there was tears, uh, there was laughter, and the pastors were impacted, and that was because of your investment. And then a youth rally was another goal that we had. We had our youth rally in September. Uh, Expectations were exceeded. It was a good day, and uh, God worked in that day. We had people from all over the state, Minnesota, Iowa, came, and we had a good time together there, good preaching. Other things the Lord's blessed us with. We had a piano donated to us this year and, and uh, some other ways the Lord has blessed us financially. And uh, I'm just excited for that. The Lord brought the Byrams to us this year. And although I was grateful to have them come, uh, how could we have known the need that would be about to open up? And they're helping us with our youth now and, and doing some secretarial work. Uh, and, and that was a need that we didn't even know would arise. And it did, and the Lord provided that. And I'm grateful for that. But basically, I'm trying to tell you, you had an impact, and I want to continue that because we have some needs in 2024. Uh, number one is the heart for the harvest. We, I want us as a church to get God's Spirit into our spirit. I want to have Christ's heart of compassion infused to us. My hope is that each and every one of you will be seized with a passion for souls. We need a youth pastor. Uh, I'm praying that God shows us the right man for that position. We need help, and I trust that God has got the right one for the job. Uh, There'll be some uh, stepping back by the Forsbergs. He's been a tremendous blessing for us, but there's some things that uh, will be transitioning in their life as well, and we'll never replace him in 50 years, but uh, we'll uh, we'll need some help in that area too, so we're praying for that. Uh, I'm, I'm trying right now to find interns. I'd love to have two again, uh, but at least one. We desperately need one to do some of that work with camp and youth conference and, and uh, VBS and all those things. I've reached out to four Bible colleges and many pastors and several evangelists, and we're trying to find the right uh, ones there. And so you pray for us uh, along with us for that. And then laborers. My challenge for you this year is to find an outlet for reaching others. Determine that you will not sit on the sidelines, but you're going to get involved for the Lord. Do you have a heart for the harvest? Are you willing to ask God for that heart? Because I guarantee you, friend, that's a prayer He'll answer. 
if you ask him. I began by talking about latent potential in the beginning of the message. And the idea is to keep going until you see results. I brought a gun with me today, and and don't panic, this is not a real gun, okay? I don't want anybody to get worried. I brought a gun just to illustrate something, because I like shooting as one of my uh, pastimes that I enjoy and uh, at targets, okay? But uh, So I go target shooting once in a while. And I learned something about shooting that, that you know if you've ever been involved in it. If you aim at a target, let's say it's 20 yards down the, down the uh, lane there, and you aim at that target, the slightest adjustment made right here will make a big difference on the target. That's why we have to learn to hold correctly and to have a very firm grip and to be able to have the least amount of movement on the, on the gun side so that the target might be acquired. Because if I move the tip of this just one millimeter here, it'll be inches off down the line. And the same is true in our Christian lives. If you make a minor adjustment now, there will be a big result down the road. And I'm asking you today, friend, to make some adjustments in your Christian life even today. Let me ask you this question. Do you think God is willing to work if you are not? No, He uses people. He uses inadequate people, but He uses people to get His work done. And so, I'm asking you to make some adjustments. And let me give you a few uh, let me give you just a few examples of things you might do. Keep a tract on you at all times. Always keep a tract on you. Uh, and give out one a week. That's not hard. Give out one tract a week. One a week. By the end of the year, you would have given out 52. If 10 of you would take up that challenge, that would be 520. And I would continue, but I don't like math. So we're just going to leave it there. But you get the idea. I remember as a youth pastor, I was challenging our teens on this, and we had some special tracks for our teens to give to others, and, and I was always challenging my teens. And so one year, I told the teens at the beginning of the year, was a message kind of like this, just challenging them to get involved, and I said, this year, uh, any of you at any time can ask me, you got a gospel tract on you? And if I don't, I'll give you a dollar. So I had to have a gospel tract on me at, at all times. That was my, I wanted to hold myself accountable. So, having teens, they asked a lot, and I lost some dollars that year. Uh, we went to camp, and uh, I had a, uh, we were, it was swim time for the guys, and we went swimming. And uh, I was, so I was in my swim trunk swimming, and one of my smart aleck teens came up and said, hey, at that time they referred to me as Pastor Ivan, said, Pastor Ivan, you got a gospel tract on you? And here's the thing, this isn't my first rodeo. I had been a youth pastor for a while. So I pulled out of my pocket a wadded up, wet, soaked little gospel track, and he didn't get a dollar. Amen. <laughs> but that'd be, a great, that'd be a great commitment to make. Have one on you at all times. Hand those things out. Read your Bible at work or at school. Read it around other people. You don't have to say a word, but if you read your Bible around others, it'll make an impact. Work the gospel into your conversations. That kind of comes off the last one. If you read your Bible, you're going to have opportunity to work the gospel into your conversations. You talk about everything else. I remember going to a barber years ago, and he had a sign up on the wall that said, no talk of religion or politics. 
in this barbershop. Um, I sat there probably about 45 minutes waiting for my turn up at bat, and uh, I, all they talked about was religion and politics, because <laughs> that's what people talk about. So talk about it. It's okay. Talk about the gospel. Give an extra $5 a month to missions. If everybody did that, we could take on a new missionary, probably several. You know what will happen? Or here's another one. Determine to pray for an unsaved person every day this year. It'll only take a minute of your time. You spend more time than that looking at YouTube. Just take a minute and pray for an unsaved person. And I tell you what will happen as you start to inst inst instill these things. It's just a small adjustment. It's a small adjustment at the beginning of the year. But what's going to happen is you're going to get to the end of the year and there'll be a big impact because of your small adjustments here. And I challenge you in that. Get a heart for the harvest. What will you do for God this year? The world is full of willing people. There's people willing to do the work and there's other people willing to let them. I'm asking you to be one willing to do the work and get involved for God. Too long I've laid me down to sleep and prayed the Lord my soul to keep. I should wake before I die and realize time is passing by. And rise and go and tell the lost despite my plans, despite the cost. Too long I've laid me down to sleep when multitudes about me weep. And others cry of dark despair for no one seems to care. My life is short and soon I'll stand with sinner's blood upon my hand unless I wake before I die and realize time is passing by. Do you have a heart for the harvest today? Start asking God for one. Start begging God, Lord, give me a passion for souls. And I guarantee you, friend, He'll answer that prayer. The, we desperately need a heart for the harvest because the harvest desperately needs our heart. Let's do that this year. Have every head bowed, every eye closed. We've covered a lot of ground today, but I'd just like to ask you today, nobody's looking around, nobody's going to point you out, or nobody's going to embarrass you, but I'd like to pray for you. If you're here today and you say, Preacher, I don't even know that I'm a Christian. I, I'm part of that harvest that needs the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if something happened to me right now. I'm sure I'd go to heaven. I don't know. I hope, but I don't know. If that's you, would you slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. No one's looking around. I just want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Now, dear Christian, the, the question and the challenge is very simple today. Do you have a heart for the harvest? Would you be willing to ask God for that heart? As she begins to play, would you stand along with me?